Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Right to Read Initiative. My name is Dr. Katherine Garforth from Garforth Education, and today I have the pleasure of having Josh King join me from Ontario. And yesterday we spoke about his journey as an educator, and today we're going to be focusing on some of his favorite tools. But before we get into that, do you want to just do a, a quick briefing on who you are and what you do as an educator? So right now I do a few things. Um, I'm a virtual teacher, um, grade six, and I've been doing that. Well, this coming September will be my third year. Um, so I'm right there with all those teachers that have had to really um, do everything virtual for the last two years. Um, and I also uh, um, run a education company. We do make some products um, that can be used in the classroom or in alternative um, programming, such as after-school programming and um, tutoring and things like that. But mostly we focus on, at least right now, we're focused on teacher education. So particularly equipping teachers with the tools that it needs to um, read the research um, apply evidence-based practices in the classroom, and then also like collect data from their own class so that they can have ongoing uh, primary research in their classroom that they can just use for classroom purposes. Mm -hmm. And then, as I was saying yesterday, that'll give them the ability to begin to build systems rather than lesson plans which will have a much bigger payout or pay off um, in their career later on. So I'm doing a couple things. I'm still in the classroom. If it's up to me, I, I'm, I would be in the classroom for the next 10 years at least. Um, maybe after that, um, running my own education program, but I'd still wanna be in the field. I'd wanna be with the students. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm also running an education business on the side and I'm working with some charities and that are also education related. So I got a lot of things on the go. Wow, that's, that's wonderful. And it's always great when you see teachers and educators that are looking to make a difference beyond their classroom. Uh, and I think that's amazing that you're doing that. And I, I know some of the work that you're putting out is amazing <laughs> and going to be making changes and having teachers be a little bit more critical of their practices uh, not in a bad way but in a good way saying oh okay well maybe I should tweak here tweak there and try this instead uh, and I think that's important so the one thing that I want to highlight is you are not a trained English teacher right you, you're not someone who focused on early literacy acquisition. You're more from a science background, but then it was because of the need of your students that you went on this journey to learning more. And I'm really excited for our conversation today because it's going to give us more of that steam, the, the science, technology, engineering, arts, and mathematics approach to education and literacy instruction. So I'm gonna put the ball in your court. What are some of your favorite tools to do this and promote that literacy development in other subjects? Well, I would say that um, the tool that very early on basically saved me um, when I began having to teach language arts was uh, systems that are designed for um, responding to individual student needs, like you know RTI systems, which is response to intervention. Anything where <clears throat> you're approaching the needs of your classroom in a, in a systematic way. So I think for me, when it came to feeling that I had finally found some tools that were evidence-based 
um, that I could apply in the classroom. Uh, it was it was when um, it just so happened in the second year that I was teaching up north in Quebec that the entire school was uh, developing an initiative around response to intervention. Sorry. And that's when they introduced me to that to that concept. And I think what makes uh, a system like response to intervention effective is it doesn't necessarily have to include any specific teaching strategy or methodology. It's really a different way of looking at the problems in the classroom. And, and most importantly, it's recognizing that out of all, all the things that you look in the evidence and in the research, collective self-advocacy is right at the top. Mm -hmm. um, also, the teacher's own opinions of their students' ability are right at the top. How reflective a teacher is of their own practices and how, and how quickly are they to respond um, to those insights. Those are all at the top when you look at research. And yet those aren't really strategies as we think of them. Those are really a shift in the mindset. Mm -hmm. And when I saw that system that tried to apply all of those things that weren't necessarily strategies, they were really a, 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 a way of being as a teacher. And then that frees you up to start making mistakes, in my opinion. I, th I feel like that's the real key. The real key is understanding that uh, for instance, when you look at research, I began to really look at research after I got introduced to RTI. Mm -hmm. And um, when you look at the research, you see something called impact size or effect size, where you measure uh, the results that you're getting in the classroom and, and how likely are you are to get certain results um, in education. Well, what I started to discover when I started using different methods was that some methods, even though they had a lower effect size, meaning that they should produce lower results in general, in given situations or contexts, they produce high results. And that, to me, that demystified some of what I was having trouble with in the research. Um, and it showed me that really a teacher should look at their practice, not as their strategies. They should look at their practice as shaping the mindset that they need and cultivating that mindset within them, that they need to be able to collect all the strategies that they need, building up this repertoire um, so that any given cohort they get from year to year or wherever they happen to be working rural or urban, they will have strategies, or at least they will have strategies at their fingertips that they can get back into and have an idea of how to deploy effectively. Um, so they can individualize the programming with their class and also make those judgment calls based on how much time they have for a given curriculum. Make those judgment calls of, I'm gonna get the best out of this because this will reach the students that need the most support. And also it won't necessarily rob the students that are ahead or don't require as much support. It'll, it'll still give them scaffolding or framework to continue to move on, whether it be independently or enriching with support. And I think that's, that's the place when a teacher begins to um, work within their class. Um, I always felt like I was working on my class. Mm -hmm. um, but you have, to, you have to become a part of the learning process and system. And the only way to get there is to begin to build systems that take uh, the need for you to micromanage everything going on in the learning process and slowly off 
uh, load or even onboard is, I think, a more positive way of framing it. Onboarding the students into the process and the system so that they also are a part of the process of orienting themselves towards the strategies that are most effective. So I'll literally say at the beginning of the year, these are the four strategies that I've used in the past at this grade level that I've found the most effect um, with. I'll even introduce the concept of effect size to my students because I believe in pure transparency with the students and demystifying the whole learning process. And I will say, we're gonna test out these methods and we're gonna give feedback so that we can start applying the methods that work the best. And I'll, and I'll tell them how I'm layering the methods. So I'm doing this method because this strategy has the most bang for your buck based on 10 minutes. In that morning, we got 10 minutes to do this. There's a lot of other strategies that might be more effective if we had more time, but this strategy has been proven to be effective in that 10 minute or 15 minute block, right? And I would say that I try to steer any, any, anyone that I'm mentoring or any of the teachers that we, 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 we train, I try to steer them away from glomming onto a particular strategy and believing that this strategy inherently is the best, that it has some sort of quality that, that makes it um, the only strategy to use. Mm -hmm. And I say, we do have strategies that are very, very highly effective and work in most contexts. But even those strategies, I try to break it down to let them recognize what is the qualities of those strategies that make them most effective. Um, and why some of the strategies that are at the top have some similarities to them. Because I want them to understand that this strategy is very effective, but given the wrong context, you could be, you could be losing an opportunity. So I know I'm getting, I'm a little evasive on like, what's the best strategy, but that's purposeful. Yeah. Well, and it's a form of dynamic teaching, right? Taking into account your students' needs and interests and using those to design your, your teaching to best fit them. And, you know, those are the teachers that make that change and that are remembered, right? right. That are willing to step outside of the box and make sure they find support for their students. Exactly. I would even say that Um, I know this might be a common trope, but I, I look at strategies as if you were a carpenter. If you ask a carpenter what, what's the best tool, it would be a very foreign question to a carpenter because he's thinking, well, there are tools I use more often. And there's a reason for that. Like I use my hammer for this. I use fasteners and nails for this. I use the leveler for Like it wouldn't be a great question for them. Mm -hmm. And I feel like teaching is very similar mm -hmm. in, in those strategies we have. Um, each one of them have certain qualities that make them very effective in, in certain instances. And some of them are like super strategies because they put together a couple different um, components, whether it's the delivery system or, you know, whether it's more direct, the instruction. Um, so, how about I explain kind of how sometimes we evaluate strategies? Um, Please do. So I would say what I've learned over time, and we're we're really we're writing some articles now to to show what it looks like we're seeing from the meta analysis. And I would say that in the classroom, a teacher once they have a lot of experience recognizes that. There are a couple of resources in the classroom that are extremely finite and kind of are limiting factors for everything. Um, and one of those things are, are time. The amount of time you have to implement something 
really will change what's going to be affected. If I have a student and I get to control my schedule and I can put in an hour reading block or language arts block, the sky could be the limit at that point. But then if I'm doing an intervention and I only have 10 minutes, some of the best strategies will not work in 10 minutes. I might have to use what would be considered by the evidence, a somewhat inferior strategy, but because it's so easy to implement, doesn't require the student to be onboarded into the how the strategy works. You can get right down and start making progress really, really quickly. And even better, if it's something that the student can continue independently without them training themselves the wrong way, um, that strategy could be way better. So. When you first start getting experience, you really start getting sensitive with time. And I would say the other element that is a very important is having a balance, and this can get really controversial here, but having a balance between procedural knowledge, um, and I know that that's used specifically in math, Mm -hmm. But I think that that concept applies to science and, and, and language arts. It's, it's things that have steps that can be taught um, where the student isn't really understanding necessarily why those things are the case. Um, you're kind of giving them a, for, a formula, whether that's giving them formulas for science of like science logic without giving them the critical thinking but you have a procedural type knowledge um, where you teach them steps and then you have the conceptual type knowledge. And I think where it becomes controversial is you can get a lot of results very quickly with anything that's procedural, mm -hmm. particularly with students that can follow instructions and you're communicating them effectively. Um, I would say procedural type knowledge as well has a big impact on students that are behind or have gaps or have uh, learning disabilities or they're um, neurologically atypical. You just have to be very careful on how you communicate those procedures, how you use that type of practice. But if you're a brand new teacher, and I know there's gonna be math teachers that are really gonna hate what I'm about to say, but if you're a brand new teacher and you're given a situation where you're underqualified to teach the math curriculum, mm -hmm. what's going to work in that, in that instance, in that context with most effectivity or with uh, most effectively, I should say, is going to be procedural type instruction. And if it's delivered um, through explicit instruction. So the more explicit something is, and the more procedural something is, the easier is it gonna be teach, the, the least amount of expertise the instructor needs, and it's going to be a great use of time. Mm -hmm. Problem is, if you just teach steps in math, you're actually not teaching math. That, I think that's everyone in that camp Explicit instruction, procedure, 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 math fluency, all of those things are great because they give us that gas. They, they get us from point A to point B uh, very quickly and effectively and efficiently, especially when you build systems in place. Mm -hmm. Problem is you, you don't have them on the right trajectory to get out of math what they need to go on to math at a higher level. Mm -hmm. And um, if you stay in that lane too long, you run the risk of not actually teaching math at all. You're just teaching them steps. And the more you get students in on that, the more outcomes you see sometimes, um, 
a lot of the energy is really getting students into the practice of this is the algorithm, follow the algorithm. Mm -hmm. As long as I have an algorithm, I'm going to do great because I all I have to do is be accurate and uh, I have to be able to um, do it quickly. So that's kind of what you're teaching. Mm -hmm. And that's why there has to be con con conceptual knowledge. Yeah. There has to be that. And I think math is tough because I think a lot of teachers come from the language arts and there isn't training for teaching math. So I, I feel for teachers, I, I understand the dread when I had to teach language, there was dread there. I didn't even remember how I learned language. So I couldn't even fall on how was I taught because I didn't remember what how I was taught back in kindergarten, grade one, grade two, when I was learning phonics and the alphabet. Well, and I think one thing to highlight is, especially when we're talking about mathematics and the way that a lot of things are being done these days, is there's so many alternative strategies for the same concept that you're teaching at once and you know i love math but i find some of the math that my kids bring home in grade you know my eldest has just finished grade three and i'm like well why would you even try to approach like i i don't understand the the reason right. for teaching i think they call it like the present strategy for addition and i just I understand the reason for teaching multiple strategies, but I think it just overcomplicates it. And when you're working on something as easy, well, not as easy, but something like two-digit addition, um, let's stick with the basics and then recognize that there are some foundational concepts that yes, you can teach differently, but traditionally sometimes maybe the most effective way to do it. And, uh, you know, we can work on the conceptual aspect after the skills been, been mastered. Right. No, no, I totally agree. I actually think in a perfect world, yeah, we would teach probably a 50, 50 split between procedural knowledge and conceptual knowledge in math. Yeah. And there would be a, a there would be definitely an input. Um, there would definitely be a, a, an emphasis on getting to automaticity. They have to get that math fluency. And that's something that should be done at the younger ages, um, especially at the younger ages where conceptual knowledge is going to be something that's a lot harder to impart mm -hmm. because the students their ability to think abstractly and their communication skills are gonna be a lot lower. And for the most part, um, we're best at communicating abstract concepts through abstract and dialogic instruction, right? Like we're, we're speaking very abstractly um, and the students have to be able to pick up those concepts. Mm -hmm. That's in a perfect world, it'd be about 50-50. I would say in our system, we're not deploying math and science background teachers to teach math and science. It's often a language arts teacher or a humanities major that is teaching uh, math and science. And even if you go into teaching um, concurrently, this, this school system is trying to get literate students. So the emphasis is definitely outsized um, when it comes to language literacy mm -hmm. and language fluency. Because of that, what we can expect out of the math classroom um, is definitely impacted by the expertise in math. So I would say just on that basis, you're perfectly correct. Like we've got to keep it simple, not just for the students, but also for the instructors. Mm -hmm. 
because they can a lot of damage can be caused, especially early on, by trying to teach multiple strategies, many of them very abstract thinking without really knowing how to do it. Mm-hmm. And then worst, how do you teach abstractly? How do you how do you teach inquiry-based and discovery-based in an environment where the teacher doesn't have the classroom management? Yes. So you're automatically creating a, a delivery system that is, the, is challenging to do in any respect. It is, I would say, discovery-based learning and inquiry-based learning is the most challenging type of learning because they should have an objective. Like, I think a lot of people approach it where they, it's like a nebulous concept that they're trying to get to. They feel like the student just needs to interact with the environment they set up. And then eventually over time, they'll come to a realization. It doesn't work that way. The students learn from modeling. You learned how to talk from modeling. You learned how to walk from modeling and support and scaffolding. You take away modeling and scaffolding and create like a sandbox mm-hmm. situation. It doesn't matter how rich you make the environment. You're going to slow down the learning, mm-hmm. especially with a student that's behind already. Mm-hmm. So why pick the most challenging type of instruction? One that requires near perfect classroom management and try to just, um, to deploy that across the board. Mm-hmm. You're, you're setting up certain schools and certain classrooms to, to fail on the outset. So I agree with you. And you're, the problem with a d- discovery-based or inquiry-based approach to instruction is that if you're not skilled to assess where your students are at in the lesson and you don't go back and have that explicit teaching for the students that it's just not working for, you're leaving your class behind. And that's where the um, the progress monitoring and the data that you were talking about is really important. Now, in our previous conversation, you, you told me about this math village for geometry right. that you right. created. I think it was even during your practicum. Yeah. And I'd love for listeners to get that in a little bit more detail, understanding how you were able to pull all this information and all these subjects based on this math project that you started with. Right, Uh, so um, we started with geometry. I was given that because the teacher hated math and particularly geometry. So I started with the concept of, I want the students to be learning about something and I want them doing something. It was that rudimentary, my thinking, but now I understand, I still use that concept, but it's all about meaning. Uh, I think we were just talking about inquiry base and discovery base. I think the real, the real genesis quad of that, the real um, importance to discovery base learning is adding in meaning into the learning. If you just learn a step, you do this, then you do that, then you do then, then you do the next step. And the student the whole time doesn't see the value in any step right. and doesn't understand the meaning behind what they're doing. You, 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 you really just have a student that can follow steps or not when you assess them. What I saw really early on was I wanted to give them something and Geometry is a lot about nomenclature and memorizing properties. Uh, I wanted to create a meaning to why we're learning those names, why we need to retain those properties. So from that point, I said, let's let's build something because in, in, in the real world, geometry is just use the model and to build. Mm-hmm. But let's, let's build a, fir- um, a village and I'm going to add meaning by when they show up in the morning, all of the desks are pushed out of the way. So something has changed in the classroom. Um, you've, you've got to make all these cues. That's what makes really good inquiry-based 
It's going to be, it's going to be queuing all the time. Mm-hmm. So I made a cue that things have changed. There's something important and it's right in the middle of the room. And it was just a huge uh, ply board with um, green felt uh, pulled taut around it. And I said, we are going to build a village. Mm-hmm. I'm here for, for three more weeks. So we've got 15 days to build a village. And the only way, the only thing we can use to build this village are, are polygons. So first, we got to learn what a polygon is so we don't build anything that we'll have to take down because it doesn't belong in the village. Mm-hmm. And then I started introducing what a polygon was and then polygons. And we were only allowed to use the polygons that were introduced. So each lesson gave the students more building materials. Mm-hmm. And I had them build them all out of... Um, thick paper from the printer mm-hmm. so they had to like very physical they did a lot of cutting everything was physical and tactile and they're so they're learning these lessons in every every lesson and sometimes i I'd jam a little bell and they know we're getting a new lesson so they all stop whatever they were doing get back to their seats like we're getting a new shape we're bringing a new shape to the to the, the and they all there and the writing and the writing. Some of the kids that couldn't really write, they're just scribbling because they wanted to fit in. And it's like, this is important because this is going to expand. So everything we're doing has a meaning and an importance. And at the end, we'll get to look back and see the learning. Instead of moving on to something else and the students have no reason why we had to learn about triangles. How does that impact my daily life? How am I going to use that when I get older? Those are the questions I never wanted any of my students to think because I remember that's what I spent thinking the whole time and why I hated geometry because I felt like it was just naming and it wasn't math. And as they built, then the practical teacher gave me a new subject. And I thought, I got this big thing in the middle of the room. I'm not taking it out of the middle of the room. It's the center of everything we're doing. It's so effective because... Students are staying in for research to keep building. Yeah. Got to build on this. So that's when I just threw all the lessons out that I was supposed to plan. I'm like, this is the only lesson I'm just going to keep putting continue at the top and just adding more information and just keep this running lesson. So the first thing we did was art. I'm like, well, now we're going to paint and we're going to shade and we're going to add all this color to this. And I was like, I'm glad I didn't get to the color before. <laughs> now I can clearly show, oh, I'm doing art now. And then and then we got to language arts. And then I'm like, well, you know what? Let's do a profile. So I created a profile document with a little picture so they would draw the characters now. So now all the characters coming in to uh, Polyville yeah. had to be polygons. And they had to draw a picture in art of their character all of that work had to be done in our time. And then in language time, they're creating their bio. And they had to go back and learn the properties of those shapes because they were trying to add that into the bio. So I modeled how I did my mind was Reginald, uh, Reginald T. Reginald T. the third, I believe, if I remember correctly. So he was a regular triangle. Right. They saw that oh, the regular original team. So they saw I was incorporating everything, that everything was interlaced in this narrative, and that subjects were just narratives. Yeah. And then I would write the whole story, and they noticed that I keep using all of the concepts from the type of angles he has to the side lanes and the equality. They would see that he was he was very equal. He was very fair. He was level like. And then they would go and try to take their um, properties and do the same thing. And then when we when we had a longer language book, I started bringing in all kinds of books and content that related to shapes and triangles and all that kind of stuff. And then I just decided, decided now that I have, I have to take over the whole class, I'm going to fill some of the rest of the time by making a mystery. So they came in and there was shocking caution tape up in part of the the village and i'm like unfortunately we thought we were building a perfect paradise 
We did everything right, guys. We had all the right shapes. We had we found all the different qualities about all those shapes and had equality in our in our perfect polyville. But something happens and the police, which I took all the characters the kids had, I scanned them in. So they had a document that they can go through all of the characters each kid created, which added more purpose to what they were doing. Everyone can see it, it was published. Yeah. And then I went through and I said, listen guys, there's a crime that's been committed. And it was one of these shapes. And everyone was like shocked. They were like, they're like, boy, it's not my shape. It's not, it was like before there was um, what is it called? Uh Among Us, which yeah. is what the kids are into now, where there's one of them as an imposter. I was kind of doing that. It was like there was an imposter in there. Yeah. And I brought in, I brought in a, 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 a crime scene from one of the, the textbooks that uh, my teacher gave me and said that I needed to use this lesson. So when I got to that part, he's like, I see what you're doing. It's really cool and great, but you need to do a traditional lesson as well. So he gave me a chapter out of that. And I looked at the whole chapter and I found that one story yeah. that had a crime scene and the kids went and solved based on all the information. So I took that story out and we read that story too. Mm-hmm. and solve that crime but we did that so that we would understand how to solve crimes and then we came back to try to solve the crime in polyville and of course it wasn't a real crime it was a misunderstanding because polyville was, was a great place and nobody's character <laughs> committed committed, uh, committed a crime but not even reginald t the third i i was tempted because i'm like this is my character but i'm like no i made him like paragon of yeah. of civility and trust and truth and i'm like i can't make it reginald t the third um but uh i can't even remember what the what the misconception was and how it wasn't a crime and then when i had to leave the class and we had to say bye to, to polygon the kids decided that they wanted you know how they, they write a letter to you when you're leaving and everything. They all wanted to write a letter to their character that was leaving. <laughs> I know. So then I created letterheads from KSA yeah. and gave them the, uh, I mean, uh, uh, Polyville. So at the time it was Polyville and I changed it late, later on to KSA. I gave them letterheads from Polyville and they wrote all their letters and, and, said goodbye to their characters and everything like that and that was like that was all improvised yeah it was completely improvised and a lot of what I relied on was cueing for the students the students would ask questions and I would just be like yeah sure that's exactly what I'm planning are we doing this text yeah of course what do you think and then we do that next um, as long as I made sure that I went to the curriculum and I looked and I said, okay, we're covering this now because this is going to be, I'm going to get less resistance yeah. on this if we learn this now because they're asking for this now. And this was a, I should say that this was a school that was, uh, you know, it was known for its classroom management situations and a lot of violence i think the time that i was there the police was called to the elementary school maybe three times elementary school to an elementary school yeah and um and they were called to my class two weeks before i was there and uh and had to intervene with a student so this was the way i described this group it would sound like this is those kids that are coming in that have all the books at home on their shelves and they're just, what are we learning today? This was not the group. Yeah. Um, when I came into that class, it was it was not that group. And I have to um, tip my hat to the practice teacher that was there because he was known as being able to do really good classroom management. And he gave me one tip that I think really had one of the greatest impacts during that entire time from a teacher telling me anything 
uh, during my college education, he said, you are in control of the environment. He says, when the kids go away, the entire learning environment is yours. That's when you plan. That's when you change the environment to conspire for learning. And I was like, well, because it was like no one had, I felt like an interloper into that moment. Like I'm coming into a classroom and there's something already going on and I have to find out how to become a part of it. But at that moment, it was like, when I turn this over to you, this is your universe. Mm-hmm. What exists in this room is what you allow to exist. But once the kids come in and they begin to interact with it and you lose control. And I added to what he told me and said, I got to get the kids on my side so that I can give away control. I don't want to fight for control. Yeah. So my conspiracy to learning is going to be to give control over to the students as best as I can, but teach them how to use that control. So he told me something radical that really made it sink, sink in. He said at the beginning of the year, the students were having so much trouble with leaving their boots around, leaving everything, just everything a mess, Uh, kids throwing chairs when they got really upset. And he said he came in about a week and he just got frustrated. And when all the kids left that day, he got rid of all the chairs and all the, the tables. So when I came and saw them putting in the tables the day I came, it made sense. Yeah. And I'm like, you did blend. He's like, yeah. And I brought cart, I brought mats, like rugs. Yeah. And we did everything on rugs. And I would make little stations and it was easier cleanup. And then what I did was systematically, as I trained different things, we worked on lining up, we worked on this, we worked on that. I realized he made class routines. He made the management of a class, the, the curriculum before he could teach. And I was like, that was like, it blew my mind. Cause I was like, now I get how I can do what I was doing one-on-one with a group of 30 kids that seem unruly. I got to understand that the fact that they're in a group is part of the curriculum. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow. He's like, yeah, if I don't like something in the room, I just get rid of it. If it's not working, it's gone. And I sit in this room. Every day they leave and I say, what is holding this back? And I just get it out of here. And I'm like, whoa, that was so radical to me at the time. Yeah. So now I'm not afraid to change anything in my classroom. Everything must go if it's not helping. Right. And then it can come back once it helps. Yeah. Well, and I, I think that the problem is that we have so much social media saying, oh, this is what a classroom should look like. And then you're like, well, mine doesn't look like that. Right. What can I do to make it look like that? But not realizing, well, maybe not that not best for the students that you have in your class. And I love how you're talking about meeting the students where they're at and not expecting them to come to where you want to teach them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that that's part of the problem with curriculum, like one curriculum across, uh, you know, in Canada, across the province, we expect everyone to meet this. And yes, it's a good thing, but then I think it makes some teachers too rigid in what they're planning on teaching and not realizing that the best way for them to cover the most material from their curriculum is by starting where the students are and building to where they need to go than just starting where they, where you're supposed to start. Because the document says so mm-hmm. uh, and not taking that time now polyville sounds amazing love to visit there uh, and read the stories learn about the characters uh one thing is it doesn't seem like it was one of those quick things to come up with and quick things to do and maybe it, in the beginning, it might've seemed like work, but I, I could hear your excitement about discussing this. And I'm sure like setting up the crying scene, like, yes, it was work, but it was fun at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, in those after hours when you're not actually in there instructing. And 
you know, once you get that excitement for the project, it gets contagious and you get the involvement of the students and they really enjoy it, really learn from it and it stays with them. And with the right facilitation, I mean, obviously you were just in a, in a short-term placement with these students during your, your teacher college. Um, but you can say, oh, hey, remember when we did this in Polyville? Mm -hmm. we, we can do it again, use, you know, this, just do it a little bit differently like mm -hmm. this. And having that excitement and that positive experience just gives them the ability to go further. I remember, you know, my, one of my teachers did measurement madness and it was like a little game show. I mean, I was in a, in a school specializing in, uh, for dyslexia at the time. So in the math block, I think there were only about five or six of us uh, learning math at a time but it was this game show and she'd bring all these objects and we'd have to estimate and give evidence for why we estimated that much. And then, you know, it was kind of like whoever got the closest answer, it was so much fun. And then we used that in other capacities and other lessons within our classroom. Oh yeah. No, that sounds, that sounds fun. And those are the things you always remember. Yeah. You remember, you remember the things that gave you that feeling like it was, you were a part of something, mm -hmm. that you were engaged and it had meaning. Mm -hmm. um, everything everything else is important. All those other uh, procedural things, they're all important. Um, but I think you get, the, you get the most out of engagement when you add meaning. Yes. Don't take away from the practice time, um, but add meaning. I think that's I think that's the, the key thing. And yes, those things take a lot of time at the beginning, especially when you're inexperienced. Now, if I had to do Polygon all uh, Polyville all over again from scratch, it wouldn't be very hard. And it's not just because I've thought of a concept already. It's because now, over time, I've learned to bring the kids into the learning process even farther so that they can help you build uh, the activity itself. Mm -hmm. So when I do activities like that, that have a lot of components that need to be planned, I elect out of my students, I the, the ones that I know, they're going to get something out of this really quickly and they're going to want more. And I'm really trying to uh, make sure I'm meeting the needs of the students that are going to need more time, that are going to need more support. I try to elect those students as chairpersons of whatever project we're doing. And I put them into roles where they're helping me execute the activity. Mm -hmm. So all, all of those drawings that I did, like endless drawings and starting storylines and uh, even setting up the board in the center of all that stuff, I would have tasked groups of students to start putting those things together. And it would have, it would have been a lot less time um, than one might think. It, it, it just takes a long time to build up the experience to be able to, to know what you can give students, what you can't, how to get the most out of the students that are helping you execute an activity to be able to use the students effectively. Um, and also how to make systems of where students can report on their own learning mm -hmm. accurately. Because the assessment part can be really, really, when students are doing all these different things in different modes at different times, especially when they have the ability to drop in and out of departments of whatever you're doing, mm -hmm. assessment can become even more challenging and time consuming if you don't find systematic ways of getting the students to give uh, their own feedback, feedback to peers and reporting on themselves and others. Mm -hmm. Of course. One thing that I, I like is how you're assigning tasks. And I remember um, doing something. And then there was a student that was a struggling student and they didn't really have buy-in in the activity. And then I gave them a managing role in the project 
And very quickly, they became excited and engaged and actually wanted to do more than I ever thought they would do. And I think it's important not to be jaded and judgmental and have expectations for your students, especially when you set the bar low, because they will meet them if it's a low bar. Uh, if you have like oh yeah this guy's you know we're not going to get buy-in he's he's not going to do it or she's not going to do it they're not going to do it i'm just going to keep on going and let them be like just accept that this isn't going to happen but then actually actively engaging them say all right yeah you know you may not have to do it like this way like everybody else is but this is your role in it and then that role like oh but man other stuff kind of looks something like I want to do that bit. So um, this has been great. I really enjoyed our conversation and hearing those tools that you're using in your classroom and the strategies. And I, I think there are a lot of things other educators can learn from you and what you're doing and your, your approach to making it more of a holistic, well, not, yeah, I think a holistic approach to teaching. Uh, with an inclusive model and not just inclusive for the students that are uh, neurodiverse, but even the neurotypical ones and making sure that they're, you're getting the best out of them and having those expectations. I have very kind words. I appreciate um, the opportunity to come and speak on these things. I really feel like still um, toward the beginning of my whole journey in this. So I'm glad that there's there's something I can report on. Um, um, and I hope I hope people can take away something from some of my experiences. It's been a trip down my memory lane. I started to realize I remember a lot more about those stressful times than I than I thought I did. <laughs> but I I've enjoyed um, our talk very much. Wonderful. Thank you.